This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today I'm joined by Christina Schwenkel, Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Riverside. We'll be talking about her book, Building Socialism. The Afterlife of East German Architecture in Urban Vietnam, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Thank you very much, Professor Schwenkel, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Oh, of course, it's our pleasure. Um, so to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your background as an anthropologist and how you came to this project? What led you to write this book? Okay, well, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I've spent about the last 20 years, 22 now, studying the material and social and cultural aftermaths of U.S. imperialism and its racialized violence in Vietnam. So my first book, which is called The American War and Contemporary Vietnam, Transnational Remembrance and Representation, that was examined how the built environment embodied and transmitted uh, contested memories. And this concern with how built forms in urban space mediate imperial histories and also official memory uh, motivates the second book, Building Socialism. And it also, you know, combines my longstanding interest in changes to urban landscapes that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I lived in Eastern Berlin in the early 1990s when I was an undergraduate, and I watched with fascination how, you know, urban memory politics played out in very complex ways on the ground with the attempt to demolish the built landscape, right? So socialist architecture was, you know, often uh, vilified. And, you know, with the with it, the devaluation and the elimination of the socialist past, and that's very much include people's identities that were very closely tied to place. So in building socialism, um, I was really able to bring these two longstanding interests together to examine decolonization through utopian planning and how those hopeful visions for a more just world uh, became dystopian uh, over time. Wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, having read the book, it's really apparent that it's, you know, a labor of love that's, you know, being that you've been thinking about for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, building socialism is very rich 
precisely because it shows us that socialist nation building in in Vietnam is intimately tied to global circulations of Western socialism and utopia. And, you know, you do that in the book by homing in on modernist architecture and planning. So I was wondering why modernist architecture? How does architecture and planning help us understand um, socialism and utopia? Okay. So... um... This is very much about the annihilation of the city of Vinh, which is at the center of the book. Um, I know we'll talk about that in just a minute, but it offered a really unique opportunity for modernist experimental planning and for transforming what had been a small industrial town into a model socialist city. And this was the first of its kind in Vietnam uh, with the support of socialist allies, right? Their socialist friends, as they were called, in this case, East German experts. And as part of efforts to decolonize and to modernize Vietnam. And this also included Vietnam's first planned residential community, or what's often called in the literature micro rayons, these integrated um, living complexes, for 15,000 workers who had been made homeless by the war. So the city, in effect, um, is, became a kind of global urban lab for modernist architecture and rational planning with the goal to produce a new kind of social order that would eliminate the kinds of spontaneous and disorderly patterns of post-war resettlement uh, while rebuilding the nation to advance socialism. So it was very much a material project, as I argue in the book, as it was a civilizing process meant to engineer a new socialist humanity by, for example, increasing labor productivity. But the idea of universal housing with modern amenities was um, also very appealing to Vietnamese planners the Vietnamese government, and also to many workers who would end up living in the um, living in the um, residential complexes at the center of the book. So I think it's important to remember that socialist planning at the time very much aspired to lift populations, especially post-colonial populations, out of poverty through you know rapid industrial and infrastructural development to secure equitable access to public goods that had never been available right, to indigenous populations. Um, And collectivizing, while collectivizing really the means of production and undoing then colonial racial inequalities as they were mapped onto urban landscapes and and access to infrastructure. So people were very committed to this hopeful vision um, of a just city, right, this alternative vision. You know, um, architects I think have always dreamed of building a better world Right, but this seem, seemingly uh, tabula rasa situation presented then East German planners uh, with a very unique opportunity for research and for application of their very universalist and, you know, arguably Eurocentric models of tropical urbanism, as it was referred to at the time, um, that produced contradictory results that you know that I cover in the book. Mm, that's wonderful. Um... You mentioned decolonization, uh, and I wanted to speak a little bit more about um, the parts of your book that deals with imperialism and ruination. Um, So could you tell us about how infrastructure and built environment in Lind are inflected by U.S. imperialism, and how does this relationship look like from the air and from the ground? 
Okay, yeah, these are important questions. And they're very central questions to setting up the book. So uh, the United States, its mass bombing campaign, uh, its mass bombing of Northern Vietnam over a period of, of 10 years was, as I argue in the book, was nothing short of deliberate defuturing, right? The kind of deliberate defuturing or demodernization through yeah. infrastructure warfare that targeted, you know, the very social and the technical systems that were necessary to sustain modern life. And Ving, the city where I worked, was the most heavily and consistently bombed urban center in northern Vietnam during the air war. It, you know, was targeted by close to 5,000 airstrikes over a decade. And so that would be between 1964 and 1973, um, according to Vietnamese municipal statistics. So it's important just to remember that the built environment was completely decimated and the population, which at the time had been about 50,000, uh, evacuated along with all of its factories um, and its public facilities. And this paved the way for me to focus in on infrastructure reconstruction efforts as a means to explore then decolonization and broader questions about how people overcame urban catastrophe to rebuild their social and their material worlds, right? That's the center, one of the central questions of the book. And which models of reconstruction or refuturing, we might say, were then most appealing to post-colonial um, planners? So one of the main ways I think about this in the book is, you know, I ask how leveled landscapes then became sites for future building projects of new possibility to, you know, imagine just socially and infrastructurally just cities during the Cold War. And so to do so, I focus on the very particular, the unique North-South connections at the time um, that to this day really remain largely unexplored. So um, two quick points to this question. Um, I think it's important also to remember that the, the bombing very much mobilized the various state and non-state actors, both the national and international, who are at the center of the, ethno of the ethnographies. Um, and these are actors who are very much a part of decolonization and anti-colonial anti solidarity movements. And it was their efforts to build a better, more just post-colonial, post-imperial world you know, as flawed or as contradictory as those efforts might have been at time, you know, those efforts were very morally charged with a sense of both, you know, humanitarian and also political urgency. Um, another important point, I think, to remember with regards to infrastructure and its impact on the landscape is that the U.S., United States completely forgot about Vietnam after it fell off the front pages of the press, right? And it was no longer considered newsworthy. Um, you know, that's the privilege and the power of imperialism, right? So there was very little consideration about how people rebuilt their lives and their communities in the aftermath of, of aerial warfare. Um, and I think this is not unique to Vietnam. We can make this an argument about any of the dozens of countries that the U.S. has carried out airstrikes against during and even after the Cold War, you know, most of which have been in the global south. And that's a very important point, I think, because the book is driven by the desire. So most of the focus on reconstruction, right, urban reconstruction focuses on World War II in Europe. So this book is very much driven by the desire to provincialize Europe and to bring other post-colonial experiences um, and, and viewpoints um, to readers. Uh, to get to your last point, 
about the, you know, the relation between the war from above and the war from below, you know, we often hear that the Vietnam War was, you know, the first television war, right? It would, the media would have played a huge role in bringing the war into people's homes, um, which was unprecedented at the time, and that it was also an optical war. And in the first chapter, I focus on the optical technologies that fed into the U.S. military's very obsessive desire to destroy non-human infrastructural objects um, through what I term the techno-fanatical bombing. Um, and this justified, I argue, an invisibilized human suffering, right? And then I moved to thinking about, but, you know, people on the ground navigated the war in very different ways. That was less about vision uh, as it was through sound. Wow, this is fascinating. Um, I especially love how you think through imperialism through defuturing and refuturing. Um, and my next question builds on that. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us more about um, the complicated space between defuturing and refuturing, um, especially. Um, for example, how do frictions around future shape planning invent? How do contesting visions um, play into modernist planning? Okay, right. So the, the book is fundamentally about the kinds of the differing logics and ideas about socialism and futurity right, is manifest through social and spatial organization, right, through architecture. And the anxieties around modernity, that I argue are highly gendered, that's another important place that emerged at that time, right? The anxieties among Vietnamese government officials, among Vietnamese planners, and also among Vietnamese residents themselves, as they grappled with this idea, what does it mean to be modern, um, it, you know, in, a, in the Cold War? Uh, you know, in that post-colonial uh, moment. So the goal was to create a radically different and more egalitarian people-oriented world through spatial design and, and the built environment. So architecture, you know, which was a product, you know, which is built in a moment of emergency, right? Modernist architecture emerged in that context of, you know, emergency construction as the Cold War was kind of playing out also on construction sites, right? We have to remember that as well. And architecture was supposed to be socially transformative, right? It was supposed to change society, but it was also supposed to change people. So modernist architecture in the form of the high-rise apartment buildings that I study um, and, and where I lived for my, my research would not only house a population displaced in wartime, but it was supposed to create a new modern way of living. And, and, you know, from the perspective of the East German planners who were involved in the project, it was one very much based on and influenced by European ideologies of social organization, for example, that centered on the nuclear family, right? This is where some of the contradictions and the limits of planning emerge. So there are these tensions then between aspirational planning on the one hand, and post-war realities on the other that emerged to expose the kinds of incompatibility of modernism's universalist claims. So the design models and the technologies that travel between East Germany and Vietnam, you know, as the book traces, they underwent significant revision and modification to then accommodate alternative cultural logics and ideas about socialist modernization. Um, so I can give you an example. Uh, Vietnamese authorities 
were very uncomfortable with the lifestyle of socialist abundance that GDR plans seemed to promise, right? Uh, and these are very contrary. First of all, they were very suspicious of what they called the GDR's bourgeois consumerist socialism. But they also saw that these plans were very much contrary to post-war conditions of scarcity, right? Um, so we have to kind of, you know, remember that this is a post-war area where people are homeless. Um, they're also experiencing scarcity. They're also experiencing hunger and starvation, right? So the idea of constructing this kind of socialist abundance, you know, with fountains and with cafes and the tree-lined streets um, was very much disconnected from the reality of, of the moments. Um, the plans themselves, for example, um, were the apartments were deemed to be too large. They were supposed to house one family where Vietnamese authorities thought that they should house at least two families, right? So for the Vietnamese authorities, it was a very practical decision to be thinking about, we have this population we need to house, and we need to house as many people as possible, rather than giving people the good life, which was very much a part of the vision of the, the German planning, right? Um, and of course, as we can talk about later, you know, the, the residents themselves in the apartment box, they were also skeptical of these kinds of high rise living spaces and the kinds of modernist conveniences that they were to offer. So, you know, the limits of planning were very quickly exposed because functional planning, you know, they attempted to impose these kinds of clean modern lines on what were historically and culturally very blurry boundaries, right? So GDR planners wanted to keep separate, you know, uh, the lines between public and private, they wanted to keep separate, the lines between living and livelihood practices um, for which Vietnamese people had, you know, these had always been integrated. You know, that they're very blurry boundaries between what are public and private. The public is often in the private and the private in the public. And living practices and uh, dwelling practices and livelihood practices have always been, you know, integrated. So there was a, this clash between you know, Vietnamese multifunctional use of space and GDR models of very differentiated space uh, that I talk about through, for example, the construction of walls, right, which for me was most symbolic and rooted in these kinds of European ideologies, um, for example, even the gender division of labor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That's fascinating. Um, so you touched a little bit on, you know, the, these different understandings of space. Um, and I was wondering if you could t- talk to us about um, different understandings of time that take shape through um, the travels of East German architecture in Vietnam, uh, especially, you know, in debates about modernist architecture, we see a focus on progressive and cyclical time as um, as temporalities that have frictions. But from my reading of your work, it's not just a matter of modernist architecture itself, but how modernist architecture moves and um, comes to life in these different settings. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. 
Yeah. Okay. So the book is about the afterlife, afterlife of utopian design. And you're right. It's such a, it speaks to very different temporalities and imaginaries of the past and the present and the future and, and including the future's past. Right. So, um, the infrastructure lens approach that I took in the book gave me the opportunity to examine the, you know, the wide range of state and non-state actors, international, national, regional, who were involved in nation building and in the, you know, comprehensive remaking of the socialist city, uh, the future socialist city, um, and its critical systems and institutions as a global solidarity project, right? And, the, and then with attention to the asymmetries of power that shaped relations between and within these groups. So first of all, to your question of, you know, affect, um, this very much allowed me to think about the affective investments in nation building that became, as I argue, manifest through particular material objects, you know, like bricks and, and other publications that have come out of this work, um, smokestacks, for example, and its promises of progress. And that's key here, right, to these particular forms of temporality that you're, you, you've asked me about. Um, and this was a way for me then to understand people's relationship also to the state, right, with this promise of progress and, and betterment, uh, and, and where those relationships then began to break down, even as people continued to identify with the state, the state uh, despite their growing disenchantment when they saw the breakdown, right, when it, the, the disruption of, um, of progress. So, you know, one of the key arguments of the book is that Vietnam's first planned city fell quickly into what I term unplanned obsolesc obsolescence, which disrupted the teleology of socialist progress, right, that, you know, and this threatened to make Ving less modern. Uh, and, and coining that term, I'm highlighting the kinds of architectural, the contrasting architectural temporalities here, the anticipated eternal designs of socialism, right, as opposed to the planned obsolescence, you know, of capitalism, right, where capitalism is, you know, continuously involved in the kinds of creative destruction, right, to keep the flow of, of you know, capital, keep capital flowing, right, to build the city um, anew. Right? This is very much about the permanent city, right? The future city that will be of the eternal city. Um, so it's also important to recognize that the city was considered quite visionary and modern and international for the time, right? Even as it enabled, you know, authorities to govern life more effectively through its design, right? That's another kind of argument that I develop in the book. But it it's also was the first of its scale in Vietnam. And what's important about that and temporality is that it very much catapulted Ving, which remember had been, quote unquote, bombed back into the Stone Age, right? So that defuturing, right? It, it, it kind of allowed Ving to kind of catapult to the future. It leapfrogged over what are often considered Vietnam's uh, most modern cities, Hanoi and, and Saigon turned Ho Chi Minh City. But only for a brief period of time, right? Between decay would set in and it would again lag behind. So you have these kinds of push and pull with Ving trying to stay at the forefront of modernity and progress, but continually finding itself as the kinds of secondary, poorer, quote unquote, backward city. Um, so the buildings were meant to have a lifespan of 80 years, right? And they soon crumbled into disrepair. 
uh, you know, owing to, you know, I was less interested in the reasons and I was interested in, in how people understood those reasons, right? What were their kinds of um, interpretations? For example, they pointed to state neglect and a lack of maintenance, but they also pointed to rural female migrants who were not properly modernized, who then became the scapegoats, uh, as the book shows, um, for decay, right? And for the kinds of cyclical time. Right, that they weren't able to keep, they weren't future focused enough, and their behaviors and their practices, their habitus was not forward looking enough to keep the city uh, on its socialist path forward. So, um, I think what's also important to mention is the you know, this approach and this kind of thinking about the relationship between you know, cyclical time and progressive time also allowed me to think of cities. And, you know, not as a priori units of analysis, right, but as always emerging and becoming cyclically made and remade through, at least in the case of Ving, um, you know, violent social action and interaction. So then the focus on traveling architectural forms and construction technologies along these particular patronage networks, right, between the socialist north and the post-colonial south, really then also then demanded an attention to their translation and their modification over time in the face of this breakdown and decay, right? Um, because the lines that constituted the urban were then constantly being contested and redrawn to accommodate the various different cultural logics and ideas about spatial planning and dwelling that existed at the time, but that were also in response to this decay. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, thank you. So um, you mentioned a little bit how gender plays into these forms. And that made me think about one part of the book that I found particularly intriguing, which is where you discuss um, the intimate spaces of modernist architecture. So I was wondering... How do everyday practices in intimate social spaces inform and transform modernist architecture in Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, I could talk about that for, for an entire hour, if not more. <laughs> so another great, another great question. Um, so let me start by saying that um, the immense creativity in socialist encounters is done little justice and accounts that stress failure, right? Failure rather than innovative practice. Um, You know, when people talk to me about the book and they talk to me about the apartments that, you know, look like they're crumbling, they're constantly, consistently um, identified as ruins from people on the outside. And we'll talk about what it means to get on the inside when we get to, you know, to think a little bit more about methodology. Um, But people are constantly focused with, you know, focusing on this idea of failure, right? And of rendering it actually moral. Um, And so I was very much, you know, wanting to think through innovative practice because modernist architecture made new imaginations of community and livelihood actually possible as people grappled again with that question of what is it to be modern in this world, in this post-colonial world, as part of this larger, you know, process of building global socialism. and this perspective sees people as agents. And while that might seem obvious to us as anthropologists, it's not often the case in studies of socialist countries, right? Where people are you know, quite often portrayed as 
docile, especially people who identify with the state. And the people with whom I worked in the housing complex very much did, right? Um, so before I get into saying a little bit more about the intimate spaces of architecture and how people transformed because of the kinds of incommensurabilities of the planning and dwelling practices, I want to say something uh, about the overlap or the intersection and where the ideas came together, where for people that the socialist, the sorry, the modernist planting kind of overlapped with their own cultural practices before I talk about where they diverge because they feed into one another. So on the whole, uh, while people generally, when I say people here, I mean the residents, but also the Vietnamese designers uh, and the uh, you know authorities, they praise the design of the complex, right, of the housing complex, the 21 buildings, right? It's supposed to be 35, but only 21 are built, so it's quite large. Um, they praised the design of the complex, but they were quite critical about the design of the individual units in the, the apartments. So let me say a little bit about that kind of contrast there. They're very impressed that the GDR architects and planners um, and craftspeople, you know, that over time, the 200 workers, you know, craftspeople, professionals that came from the GDR to live in Vietnam to work on this project between a couple months to up to seven years. Um, the ways in which the experts appear to incorporate feng shui principles and orientations into the design. For example, in the staggering of the buildings at certain angles to increase natural light and ventilation, the kind of green design to produce shade, right? I mean, and this was all very much informed by rational scientific planning uh, and ways of thinking about the, you know, the, the climate, the harsh, quote unquote, harsh climate of this area is something that needed to be tamed, right? That's a, kind of one of the fundamental tenets of, of tropical urbanism. Um, so the goal to tame the harsh climate and also to tame unruly practices around urban planning and unruly bodies at the same time. But it was assumed that the Vietnamese, Vietnamese planners and residents assumed that the GDR experts had been trained in feng shui, right? Especially in kinds of like the wind science, et cetera. So at the same time, because it was very kind of climate responsive architecture, right? At the same time, the apartments very much violated those practices of feng shui, right? And so this was a contradiction for people. The design of the whole complex was, you know, was very much oriented uh, towards good energy, right? Until healthful futures, but the apartments themselves were, were not. Uh, and this is where some of those contradictions came into place, especially cultural, uh, cultural contradictions and practices of dwelling. So um, in terms of the layout, so the alignment, for example, very much, you know, we talk about the construction of walls, right? And how the walls actually, so the ventilation, which was seen as positive, the ways in which the design um, guided and led wind through and between the buildings, right? To keep the buildings naturally cool, brought in bad air when they came in through into the apartments. So the apartments were designed with, for an example, a toilet in the front, Right. And while GDR planners thought that people might be quite excited to have, you know, sanitation and, and toilets in the house, people actually were not. And the ways in which the winds came, they would bring in and then move the bad wind through the apartment, which was a violation of feng shui, which was seen as unhealthful air that could result in illness 
especially how they had designed a long hallway. That meant that there was no obstruction to the wind, which is seen as negative in terms of health in Vietnam. But first and foremost, it completely violated the Feng Shui principles for, um, for ancestral veneration. And that becomes a huge topic then in the book. These, department, these apartments were not designed in ways that would allow people to kind of carry on their, their spiritual beliefs in ways that could then assure them that better future, right, through their practices of venerating the ancestors. So people then got in and modified, took out walls, moved doorways around, right, repositioned where kitchens were, you know, because this was the first time many people who were from, the majority were from rural areas, rural vernacular architecture generally places um, toilets uh, and also kitchens outside. They're not in the main house, right? So bringing them into the house um, raised all sorts of issues around different kinds of pollution, right? And how that pollution in the air, then the air moved that pollution through the house. Um, so the design was very much according to a nuclear family, right? You can even see in the way in which they labeled the different rooms as a sleeping room, as a living room, as a kitchen, right? Um, and then divided those up between different kinds of gender division of labor and people reconfigured those as well, especially by removing walls and combining open space, right? That's what people were more interested in having open multifunctional space, not space that was then divided, making for smaller spaces that were then differentiated. This room is for sleeping, this room is for cooking, this room is for having guests, etc. There are very much ways in which, for example, the uh, there was this way in which that they built, this made the, the complex quite unique. They built the structures on starting on the first floor above, right higher up, because for, again, to take into consideration climate responsible and climate um, responsive planning because of floods. So, but for people, rather than see this as something positive, they saw it as, well, we have to walk up more stairs. And also what that meant is they had these underground, what are called walkout basements, um, that GDR planners thought would be a great extra space. Every household received one, uh, you know, but people were quite forward, quite straightforward in saying to me, you know, we didn't have anything to put in them. We didn't own anything, right? So this idea of having storage space, right, was already based on this idea of hoarding and collecting and having access to material objects that people just did not have, you know, after the war. So what people did over time, especially women, was convert them then into storefronts. And so the last part of the book, you know, I look at the ways in which people expanded their apartments to add more space and to accommodate three-generation family, right, which was more common for Vietnamese families, and also the ways in which they then were able then to integrate their livelihood practices into their living spaces. That's fascinating. Um, you gave us some wonderful examples on renovation and how you know these spaces that are deemed as failures are in fact very lively. Um, and I was wondering what these practices do to ideas of utopia. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the relationship between utopia, decay, and renovation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a major um, topic of the last section of the book, right? And the, again, getting back to this idea of the afterlives of, of utopia. So my approach to understanding the cycles 
of, you know, decay, ruination, and then reconstruction that you were talking about earlier, these cycles, um, and which are at the center of the book, was to focus on decay, not as the death of architecture, right, but as, again, going back to the idea, but as sites and opportunities for uh, innovation and recreation, and as opportunities, as I show in one of the chapters that focuses on the, the women workers for the formation of new political subjectivities. So I think there, at the moment, there's a lot of fascination and anthropological studies um, of infrastructure, fascination with ruins, right? A lot of focus on ruins. And I think at the start of my studies, I, you know, this, this study, I conceptualize ruins also as a kind of device to examine, you know, the remains of the violence extractive and destructive histories of, of colonialism and imperialism and the kind of slow modernist unraveling of modernist dream worlds, right, to this kind of mere, you know, crumbling materiality. But, um, and this was influenced a lot by the discourse of people constantly referring to, you know, my field site as, you know, ruined buildings, right? And because, and which would then justify, right, this is a common kind of, you know, you know, mantra we hear around or among kind of capitalist triumphalists, right? That these are kind of ruined, these are perverse architecture, ruined buildings, you know, uh, which justifies their removal from the landscape and then their redevelopment, right? Into these kinds of, you know, new privatized condominiums. So um, when I got to the field, I had to think about this kind of temporal, rethink this temporal and analytical approach because I saw that the discourse of ruins, you know, was the, deployed mostly as kind of a metaphor and a moral characterization, right? This moral characterization to identify spaces and built structures that people deemed derelict, right? And that the practices, again, going back to the ways in which the practices were then seen as contributing to this decay, which then shifted the blame away from the state, right? Not holding the state accountable. Um, so decay stood in for failure, right? And it was, again, rendered you know, moral, the failure of certain people, predominantly migrant women, unable to be civilized in the ways deemed appropriate for the modern city, and the failure of socialism and its vision of collective betterment. And again, this became the, you know, rationalization for creative destruction and the wholesale demolition of landscape in the interest of profit, right? We've seen this actually all over, you know, the, the post-socialist world. But what's so interesting is that I saw that residents didn't see the urban landscape or the, or the housing blocks um, in which they, they lived is necessarily, quote unquote, ruined, right? And so I felt like the literature on ruins that I was grappling with at the time didn't really give me the tools to address, you know, forms of dwelling, right? Ruins are often to, assumed to be these kinds of abandoned spaces, but, you know, these are inhabited, lively spaces, and that made me think about then modernist decay is not as a static site, you know, of a discarded and a discredited past, you know, kind of a might have been place, uh, but as an active inhabited space of potentiality and, and even future possibility is still something that might be, right? Even with this kind of specter of demolition hanging over the, the, the residents in the housing complex. Um, so rather than focus kind of on the, the failure of these grand high modernist projects that once thought to radically, you know, radically remake the world, like, you know, as James Scott has argued in his, his um, studies, you know, the people I lived with, 
in the collective housing, they were busy making new claims on the urban future through remodeling and through the revaluing of, of their homes. So this made me reconsider the temporal association of rooms with decline, right? Um, and then thereafter, my research sh shifted to paying more attention to, you know, how decay then catalyzed social and political action and then formed the bedrock of these new political subjectivities, especially among women, as people began to contest state neglect, the material conditions of urban life, and then also to, you know, resist treating housing as a commodity and not a right, right? And that's kind of how I, I wrap up the book. Um, so this approach offered me a way to, this kind of combines with your previous question, uh, this approach offered me a way to kind of reconceptualize ruination, not simply as rupture, right, with the past, but also as an opportunity for, you know, improvisation and recreation of material worlds, you know, in an effort to, to make do and to assume some control over the future um, and their the built environment. Thank you for these, you know, very valuable and very subtle points that actually apply across a lot of contexts. Um, before we wrap up, I want to turn to how you came to make these arguments uh, and your methodology. So in the book, you... Um, show us that you employed a very rich and multidisciplinary methodological toolkit. Um, you not only rely on ethnography and archival research, but also local collaborations and even surveys, which I honestly do not see very often uh, in, in ethnographic works. Um, so how did you arrive at these methodological choices? Mm hmm yeah, that's great. Um, great questions. And I love the questions um, about the survey, too, because I was actually surprised I did it myself. So, um, yeah, in, in a nutshell, you know, the, the, the book is uh, multi-sided, uh, multi-method historical ethnography, right, of Vietnam's first and only planned socialist city as a kind of transnational and decolonial global Cold War project. Um, at the same time, it is also a visual history, right, of the buildings that are at the center of the ethnography and the people who designed and built and lived in them, and in many cases continue to do so. So as such, I needed a methodological toolkit that would allow me to study the plans, right, the vision, you know, materially in terms of the blueprints and the drawings, but also immaterially in terms of the ideas that people had. Um, as well as the material realization of those plans, the housing, the factories, the parks, right? In short, the city. Um, and the diverse, changing and changing set of state and non-state actors who were involved directly and indirectly with the project across time and space. Um, so as, you know, as ethnographers, we turn first and foremost to fieldwork, right? To participant observation and immersion in the field site, in which me, that meant... Um, the buildings. So, um, you know, as anthropologists, I think we're well used to talking about modernity in terms of a plurality of lived experiences. But, you know, there's still, I find, a very conventional way of thinking about modernism as, you know, productive of a universal set of shared experiences, right? So there's this ongoing association of modernist buildings with uniformity, uniformity of form and of dwelling practices, 
right? There's an emphasis on, you know, alienation. There's an emphasis on certain very limited sensibilities like drabness and a lack of imagination on the side of designers and also of residents. And these kinds of assumptions are being made from, you know, the outside. So I began thinking of, you know, why do we continue to think of modernism as a uniform experience? So, of course, once I moved into the building and once I started the surveys, which is important, and I'll say something about that more in a moment, I was immediately able to see, again, the innovation that was generated by decay. But living in the buildings allowed me to see, first and foremost, that the experience of modernism and modernist architecture was not in any sense uniform, right? There was an or, or about alienation, right? There was this kind of, you know, um, incredibly vibrant social life that was taking place in the communal spaces in and between the buildings, you know, and also that there was very little uniformity, even in terms of looking and getting to know the buildings in, 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 in the interiors, right? Now, for me to study that kind of diversity in terms of form, but also in terms of the interiors, and then also in terms of the people who live there, um, that's where I had to turn to kinds of um, uh, surveys. I'll say something about that in, in, in a minute. Um, you know, there were certain complex details, certain details that I would never have been able to pick up on, right, had I not lived there. And actually, had I not done, you know, the surveys either. For example, there was a very complex numbering system, which was one way for me to study the limits of rational planning. And this also became apparent during the survey. There were 21 buildings and 1,300 households, right? And we ended up, you know, my team and I ended up doing 650, surveying 650, so 50% of the households. And I needed to become familiar with each of those buildings. So by the time I, I got there, there was um, one building had been a, a hotel and then another building had been demolished. So I had 19 buildings across three complexes, I'm sorry, across three areas, areas A, B, and C, that I needed to become familiar with in order to understand the history of construction. Because each one had its own history. Each one had its own unique history. And each one had changes to the designs, right? And those changes to the designs were not um, in the plans. I'll talk about that in a minute, why archival work has its own limitations. I had to become familiar with allocations, like which buildings were allocated to which work union, units. Uh, and work units were places were the, you know, the basis of social organization at the time. Um, and I also needed to do the survey to become familiar with contemporary residency, you know, with an attention and to be able to get inside the, 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 apartments is be able to see renovations, but also, you know, who continued to live there, how they had in very fascinating ways moved between and among the apartment um, buildings, how families moved in and how they set up and then, you know, set up these complex, you know, uh, multi-generational families across the apartment units, right? Um, and also to get people's perspectives on privatization and demolition. So the surveys were first and foremost about getting to know the site, getting to know people. And also, you know, as an American, as an American woman who was researching a site that had been heavily bombed and the people's lives, these were people who were, you know, I should say had all been um, negatively infected by the war, 
These were, you know, um, people who had war injuries. These were families of what we would call gold star families in the United States who had lost family members. These were families um, who had children affected by and, and who had died from Agent Orange, right? We're talking about poor families who had suffered a lot from, from the war. So it was very important for me that people got to know me, that people uh, agreed to me being in the buildings, Right. And one of the ways that we did this was through uh, the surveys and the we had a very remarkably low, you know, high participation rate of 98 percent. It also allowed people to share with me their personal stories. They we gave them the opportunity to invite me back individually. Right. And, and in Vietnam, like you'd never just go anywhere on your own when you first arrived somewhere. You, you know, I had my research assistant with me. And then as I got to know people, I would go into you know, people's homes on my own, do my rounds, visit and do interviews, was able to get and see more detailed inside and the interiors, how people had changed them over time. We were able to see how the buildings were not built in uniform ways and that they contradicted some of the plans. So these types of ways in which it became really important to do both living in the apartments, the experience, the sensory experience of these apartments, experiencing the design, right, the wind, the natural light, but also the decay, and at the same time becoming familiar across these areas. Um, that was probably, that was important on both sides. Um, I think what's also different about my approach, surprisingly, uh, is that I worked in the archives, right? And, and I did a kind of trans-archival work over 10 years, actually. But, you know, as an, as an anthropologist, I really approach archives critically, right, as both kind of source and subject as a site, on the one hand, for the production of certain claims to historical truth, and a site of ethnographic observation for the exercise of, you know, bureaucracy and state power. And this thinking is very much informed by the archival turn you know, where anthropologists have reconceptualized archives as, you know, sites of dynamic practices of organizing and classifying and accessing historical records, you know, rather than merely as a static repository of, you know, authoritative neutral documents. So, um, you know, my trans archival methodology was also multi-scalar. It was across nations and across regions, as well as across state and non-state entities. Entities. So I worked a lot with personal archives. They took on a really great importance in this project, particularly around the visual history of the book. And, you know, this breadth allowed me to compare and contrast documents and the truth claims they offered through both text and image. Um, and in turn, that deepened my own understanding of the power dynamics, you know, and, and the political stakes that were at play in North, these North-South infrastructural progress uh, projects at the center of the book. Um, subaltern perspectives that I gleaned from the post-colonial archives, you know, the national, the provincial, um, which, you know, were more, much more difficult to access, the municipal and the personal, and here I'm talking about like official records and newspaper articles, the comics and maps and the poems. I collected so many poems that people had written about the buildings, blueprints and drawings and photographs that were housed in libraries and museums and state repositories government departments in individual homes. Um, they they complemented, but they also, you know, not infrequently contradicted, you know, my eth ethnographic work on the lived experience of utopian design, right? So I really had to read across national archives, you know, and this then broadened my knowledge of the disconnect, very much so between 
infrastructure planning aspirations and um, their outcomes. So I, I, I have to say, I remain surprised actually at how few anthropologists consider working in archives as part of their methodological toolkit. You know, I mean, bureaucratically, it was just fascinating to see the flexibility and how these spaces are administered, right? And what documents one might receive on any given day. So like ethnographic work, you know, access our work in archives takes time. You have to learn the system, but also time to build social relations, um, and especially in Vietnam. And one of the archives that I had access to, I was only the second foreigner um, allowed to access the, you know, allowed inside, but the first one to actually, you know, conduct research with the, with the documents. Um, so beyond the formalities, you know, access to information is very much about trust and in the end allowed for some, you know, the bending of rules at certain times. You know, the further I was away from Hanoi, the more I, you know, I saw rules being bent. So like allowing me to accompany the archivist to the stacks, for example, which gave me a way of then viewing, you know, the organization of, um, of information. So um, this also allowed me to think about very much the arbitrariness of state power, right? And its claims to like, national security. So what I observed very different degrees of access to government docu documents that were classified materials in one case, and then the next archive I went to were declassified in another. One I was allowed to photograph, the other one I wasn't, you know. And so, you know, beyond the arbitrary claim to the control records was an equally arbitrary claim to their ownership, which was also fascinating. So it really raised important questions about, you know, who owns the past, you know, for right claims focused on the subject of the photograph in Ving that, you know, were largely based on, on the subject of the photograph, for example, in Ving, and, and not on its creator, as we often find with, you know, Western capitalist authorship. Wow, thank you very much for sharing your research process with us. And, you know, the way you share it with us, it's apparent that methodology is not just how you do research, but it's also, you know, the theory itself. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, you're very welcome. And finally, thank you very much, Professor Schwenko, for joining us and for your insights. Yeah, thank you very much again. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan. This discussion of building socialism, the afterlife of East German architecture in urban Vietnam, published by Duke University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>